Three. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, and our text this morning will be verses 9 to 20 of God's holy word. <clears throat> you know, some of you are familiar with some of the current apologists in the Christian faith. Um, you may hear them ask people on the street, do you think that you're a good person? And usually you'll find that many people will acknowledge that they believe themselves to be a good person. They usually end up uh, looking at themselves perhaps in comparison to another. Well, I don't do the things that those folks do, so I think that I'm morally upright. And perhaps they genuinely think this about themselves. But when you're looking at this question, are you a good person? This is one of the things that Paul's been addressing to his Jewish audience, who you think uh, would, would be more uh, receiving of what Paul is saying, consi considering that it's consistent with all of the Old Testament pointing to Christ and pointing to the only righteousness which gains favor with God. But Paul's audience, his Jewish audience, as he began to speak to them in chapter 2, are those who think themselves to be morally upright, who do the things in the law as a means of gaining favor with God. They thought that since they had the law, that they must have been better off than the Gentiles. They thought because they had the knowledge of God and circumcision, the covenant sign, that they're better off and that they're just before God. And surely God would not bring justice or judgment upon his covenant people. He chose them out of all, all the nations of the world. But as Paul's been working through chapter 2 into chapter 3, he has been laboring this point to say to his Jewish audience that you are guilty. You may not be doing necessarily the things that the Gentiles are doing that he went over in chapter 1, but when you say to others, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery yourselves? When you say to others, do not commit idolatry, do you rob temples? These are the things that Paul is bringing out to his audience. And he's doing so not to just to bring them into uh, some hopeless state in despair, but to do so in, in the sense of removing any foundation of assurance that they may have or that they, that they may build their, their own lives upon in order to bring about the gospel, because that's where he's heading. He's heading to the gospel. And his point here is to address the very question, can any person, whether Jew or Gentile, be righteous before God? And the answer to that is... No. But some of those folks who think themselves to be morally upright are some of the toughest to reach. We've talked about that. They think because of their good deeds that they've gained favor with God. They think because they're not as vile as other people that surely they must be in good standing with God. And so there's a lot of comparing ourselves to others. We do the same thing. When, we're, when we are trying to gauge our Christian walk and we're trying to think to ourselves, how well are we doing? Well, we begin to look at other people. Well, I'm not doing what they're doing, and I'm keeping myself from this, so I'm not doing that. I must be pretty good. But you know, God's Word says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regards to another. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here 
as he began in chapter 3, it's continuing in our text today, is to demonstrate the universality of sin among all, Jew and Gentile. All are guilty, all are depraved, so that no one may boast before God of, of any works that they're doing or boast before God in reference in, to compare themselves to another. All are corrupt. And he uses an example here in this passage that is universal of all people. See, some of the Jews could probably look at Paul and say, the things that you mentioned, Paul, earlier in your letter of what the Gentiles are doing, we're not doing that. But Paul's going to use an example that is universal of all people. This you're doing, and they're doing it too. He makes it very clear within this set of verses that all are corrupt to their very core. You know, usually when we're teaching about total depravity, this is one of the passages that we go to. We go to Romans chapter 3, because this is what Paul lays out. The mind is corrupt. The heart and the affections are corrupt. The will is corrupt. Everything is corrupt. This doesn't mean, when we're talking about total depravity, as you, as you well know, this does not mean that man is as corrupt as he could be or as evil as he could be. But this does mean that the fall affected man to such an extent that the very core of his being is fallen and inclined to wickedness, inclined away from the Lord. That's what it does mean. The entirety of his being is inclined away from the Lord. So again, Paul, is, his goal is not to bring all people to uh, this utter despair of how terrible they are and just leave it at that. But again, he is destroying every foundation on which anyone, Jew or Gentile, may attempt to justify themselves before God concerning their own work so that he may bring to them the only hope for all, whether Jew or Gentile, is Christ and that he may be magnified. And this is true of all ages, of all people. These things are true. That none of us, even here today, may attempt to justify ourselves before God because here's what ends up happening. We take certain sins and we say, these sins... You know, they're just part of my life. There's nothing, you know, really to change about them. But thank the Lord I'm not doing these things. So I'm going to justify myself here thinking that God is good with me and, and rest in the fact that I'm not doing other things. But no one here may attempt to justify sin, justify our sinful behaviors, our sinful lifestyles. None of the things that we think may gain favor with God will. Just because you attend church does not mean that you gain favor with God. It doesn't matter your age as to make you exempt from, uh, from, from God's accountability, from accountability to God and not your good deeds. You have nothing to offer the Lord that he would ever pardon you based on something you're doing. We are all hopeless without Christ, and that's what the apostle is demonstrating here. So as we work our way through this passage, we're looking at all mankind's depravity. We're looking at the wickedness of our words, the wickedness of our hearts. That is universal of all people. All mankind's condemnation under the law of God. So if you would, let's stand together as we give honor to God's word. This is Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 9, reading through verse 20. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Verse 9. What then? 
Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that in spite of our fallen nature and our hopeless state apart from you, that you have given us such a great hope in Christ. We pray, Father, that our assurance of our salvation uh, would be even greater as we look not to ourselves, but we look to your Son. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so earlier in chapter 3, Paul has been addressing the advantage of the Jews. As he had previously in the, in the second chapter tried to demolish any assurance that they may have had because they bear the name Jew, they have the law, they have circumcision... And the apostle is saying to his Jewish audience, none of these things matter because you're still guilty before God. So then he begins to answer the question in chapter 3, then what is the advantage? What is the advantage of being a Jew? And in reference or in light of what he said in chapter 2, you would think that he would say, well, there's probably not much. But then he says that there is, there is a great advantage he says, great in every respect, because they were the ones who were entrusted with the law of God. They were the ones who were entrusted with the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God in comparison to any other nation on earth. They were the, the chosen people of God. And there was a great advantage there, because when it came to the forgiveness of sins and coming into the presence of a holy God, God had provided the means that they may do so out of all the nations of the earth. And so there was a great, there was a great benefit However, in light of some not believing, the question comes, if some did not believe, will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? And the answer to that question is, may it never be. No, just because some do not believe does not mean that God is going to be unfaithful to his promises that he made. Because God has always been faithful, even in light of the disobedience of his people. Regardless of all the things that had ever taken place, God has always been faithful to fulfill his promises. And we had talked about some of those instances in the Old Testament. But if you just look at it, how many times that the people were unfaithful to the Lord and how much the Lord was faithful to them. Sometimes his, his faithfulness expressed itself in judgment against them because he told them that was the agreement of the covenant. But he was always faithful to bring about exactly what he promised his people. Whether it was the land promise, 
that he gave him all the land that he promised. And you read of that in Joshua 21, Joshua 23, 1 Kings chapter, uh, I think it's 1 Kings chapter 5, or chapter 8, rather. He was faithful in bringing about the Messiah through the preserved line of Judah, etc., etc., even in light of the unfaithfulness of his people. And just because some do not believe does not, believe, does not mean then that he's going to nullify his continued promise. It doesn't mean as well that when people are in disobedience and it magnifies the justice of God, that God is pleased with that. He addresses that in verses 1 to 8 as well. But he says something towards the end as he is, he is hearing the objections perhaps of his audience. He says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? If my sin magnifies God, why does he still judge me? And again, these are things that he is just briefly touching on. He's going to address it later in chapter 6 and especially chapter 9, what he's beginning here. But he does address a report uh, that he brings about there that they're slandered with by the, the Jews. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. So this is one of the slanders against the Christian folks. So then he asked this question, as he is getting ready to, to dive right into the universal uh, depravity of man. He asked the question, what then, are we better than they? Now, this is very interesting because a number of commentators will have different opinions on this. Is Paul saying to his Jewish audience, are we Jews then better than the Gentiles? Is there something that we are, are able to have that shield us from God's justice? And the answer that he says there is, is no, not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he begins to give this string of of passages of scripture primarily from the Psalms. But the way that Paul has been speaking thus far within this epistle, when he refers to we, as he did in verse 8, he's, re he's referring to the believers. He's referring to Christians. He's, not, he's been referring to the Jews in the third person. He's not been aligning uh, himself in that camp. And so if the slander is, is coming about that these Christians here want to do evil, that good may come, and he says their condemnation is just, but he, then he begins to answer, answer this question, are we Christians better off than they? If that's the report, and that's what people are thinking, you Christians just think that you're better, and you don't have uh, all these laws that we are to abide by, you don't have circumcision, etc., etc., he asks the question, are we better than they? We, the Christians, the believers... William Hendrickson writes, The question, therefore, is, of ourselves, are we Christians better than other people? And the answer is no. The entire human race is condemnable before God. End quote. So as Paul is addressing the unbelieving Gentiles, as he's addressing the unbelieving Jews, and then he comes to the Christians and he says, Okay, do you think that we're better off? And the answer, he says, is, of ourselves... No, we're not. Because even of ourselves, there is still nothing that we can appeal to God just because we want to bear the name Christian. There is nothing that any believer can do in order to gain favor with God. Though we, we have that belief uh, in many churches today, we call it legalism. We can do 
this and this and this, and God is going to be, he's going to be pleased with us, and this is gaining us favor with God. And what Paul is saying is, no, of ourselves there is nothing. The Christians cannot come before God and say, oh, Lord, since we have believed and since we have done these good things, let your grace be upon us. And Paul is saying, no, there is nothing of ourselves in and of ourselves that we could say that we are better off. We are all condemnable. All of us. Because all of us are guilty before a holy God. That's what it comes down to. Everyone is guilty before a holy God. So what is the answer? Well, we know the answer is Christ, and he's going to get there. But in order to answer this question or to establish this truth, that he's in agreement with all of what the law said previously, he begins this, this, this string of scriptures that are primarily, again, from the Psalms. One, one particular passage that he does quote is from Isaiah. The rest of this is from the Psalms which is uh, very interesting as well, that when he brings universal condemnation upon all mankind, he doesn't just go to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go to any particular passage within the first five books that we refer to as the law. He's quoting from the Psalms, primarily from the Psalms. That ought to teach us something about the nature of the Psalms and, and the use and the advantage of reading the Psalms. There is much truth there that we just don't view as uh, this is poetry or whatever. There is some didactic teaching to gain from there. And Paul's using it in such a way that all the scripture is inspired by God. All of it is profitable, as he says later. So as he indicts all mankind, he's going to address man's universal depravity. And so in verses 10 to 12, he's going to quote from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. Most likely, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. But he begins, as it is written, as, as he says, all Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There are none who seek after God. There are none that do good. All have turned aside. This is where we come to when, again, we are speaking of the depravity of man. What passages do we go to? We go to this one right here because it's universal. There are none who are just before God. There are none righteous. There are none who live in such a way that God looks at them and he says, You are doing so well. You may gain my favor. Because there are none who meet the perfection that God demands. There are none who are righteous before God. There are none, again, who can say, I have merited God's favor. There are none who understands. And when you're looking at this, you're also seeing the fallenness of, of man's mind. There are none who understand. It carries the idea of grasping something that challenges our thinking or our practice. And Paul says there's none who understand. There's none who understand even, even their state before a holy God. Because if they did, they would not continue to do the things that he's going to list further. All are under sin. 
subject to its condemnation, enslaved to its demands, and it's understood first and foremost because there are none who are righteous. There are none who understand. There are none who can understand the majesty of God unless he revealed himself is what we understand from Scripture anyway. But there are none who seek after God. And why is he doing this, first off? Why is he giving a universal condemnation here? Because his, his argument is to show that a particular class of people are not in view here. It's not just one particular group that's in view. It's to show that all mankind, generally speaking, is under the condemnation of God. One writer says this picture draws, the picture he draws is dismal. No one is righteous. In fact, no one understands his deplorable condition. And no one is even trying to understand is even searching for God, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He does say that there are none who seek after God. Now, when we say that, we usually have a little bit of pushback. Okay, there are none who seek after God. Well, if that's the case, especially when you take the seeker-sensitive movement, what was the basis of that? The basis of the seeker movement was we have all these people out here that are searching for God and we have to do something in order to bring them into the church that they can find him here. And what does Paul say? There are none who seek after God. Well, how do we account for the religious nature of man? If we see all these, and some Christians are susceptible to this, they'll look around and say, well, these other people in these other countries, they're just doing what... what What's familiar to them? They don't know. And so they, they, they resort to the closest thing that they know and, and to try to serve, serve God. And sometimes it manifests itself in other religions. Well, let me ask a question. When it came to Israel's neighbors in the Old Testament, did God say, we need to commend them because they're searching for me in all their idolatry? So why don't you go and, and to help bring them in? Now, what does he say? What does he do? He brings condemnation on them because of their idolatry. When Israel fell into idolatry themselves, did he say, Now, I know that the generations past had known me, and perhaps your generation doesn't quite know me. Let me commend you for at least trying to find me, for searching for me. But let me reveal myself now to you. Is that what God did? No. What did he do? He brought judgment upon his people because of their idolatry. We don't commend idolatry. We don't commend heresy. We don't commend a false understanding of God. We don't give people a pass when it comes to having a true knowledge of God. We don't say, well, they're just following what what is natural to them or in the specific area that they're in. Often a question that you hear is, well, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you'd probably be a Muslim. Well, one, that calls into question the sovereignty of God because God places us where he wants us in the times that he wants us and all of that according to Acts. And God is sovereign over the nations. There are Christians in all nations. And the fact of the matter is, is Christianity is not just a Western religion. That's nonsense. As we've talked about before, when it comes to the Christian faith, you have Christians all over the globe. The kingdom is growing, even in places in which it does receive great persecution. So there is no excuse. 
And it goes back to this very truth, there are none who seek after God. Why does it seem like they are? Why does it seem like man is seeking after God? And as some of you have probably heard R.C. Sproul quoting uh, Thomas Aquinas, he said that Thomas Aquinas had the same question presented to him, and he said it's not as if these people are seeking for God. They're seeking after the benefits that only God can give. They don't want him, but they do want the benefits that he can give. And that's why man brings various religions up. That's why he creates various religions. But in seeking the true and the living God, there are none who seek after him. As Sproul also says, there is only one seeker in salvation, and that's God. Only one. So there are none righteous. There are none who understand. There are none who seek after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. They've turned aside from the path that God has placed them upon. You know, we are called to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We are called to, to follow, to walk righteously before God or to walk worthy of our calling. And what does natural man do? He veers off on his own path and he ends up into idolatry. He ends up into further depravity, further sin. He says they become useless. And it means, as one writer says, it means that they become a liability to society because of moral depravity. And you see that. You see that today. That those who indulge in the things that we find today, they, they only help to further along others into that same depravity. They become a liability to society, not a benefit to society. There are none who do good. Not even one. Do you think you do good enough to merit God's favor towards you? You know, there was one, one girl that I had went to high school with, and we got into this bit of a debate. Uh, she had come out as a homosexual, and yet she referred to herself as a Christian, and so I'm trying to talk with her trying to reason with her from the scripture. And the very thing that she kept going back to was not at all the scripture, as the scripture would justify me in this or the scripture justifies me in this. Instead, what she kept going back to is, well, I'm going to be in heaven because I, I volunteer down at the local animal shelter. And then I go and I do these other good things. And I go and I do this. And so she thinks to herself that she's doing good, and since she is doing good, that she must be okay. And it's just this one particular area of her life that she still tried to justify. But this one particular area of life that might be in conflict with the scripture. And so she thinks herself to be good, good enough to get to heaven. And these, these are the very ones that Paul is addressing here. The universal indictment of mankind is, you're not good. There is only one good, and that is God. Only one who is perfect, and that is God. There is only one righteous, and that is God. And that is what Paul is establishing here, because he's going to talk about a righteousness that does exist. There is that perfect righteousness that does exist. You're just not going to find it from fallen humanity. He's going, to get, he's going to get to that. 
But in his indictment, our minds are fallen. We can't understand. We do our own thing. We go our own path. We reject the true knowledge of God for idols. We indulge in our immoralities. And we become a liability. All mankind. As he addresses mankind in generally, then he begins to speak of, of an example whereby both Jews and Gentiles would all be under condemnation. So just in case that you do have some of his Jewish audience that, that say to, the, to Paul, now Paul, I know what you said in the earlier part of your letter when you were describing the works of the Gentiles, they're all their sexual immoralities, etc., etc., well, we're not doing that. And so Paul doesn't have to recount the very things that he said previously. Now he's going to choose something specific. And he's going to choose something specific that all are guilty of. In order to show that all are under condemnation of God. And so he begins to talk about their depraved speech. Their depraved words. This is, this is very heavy language here. That he uses just to speak of, of what we say to one another. What we talk about. Now in, verses, in verse 13, if you want to jot this down. Verse 13, he's quoting from Psalm 5 verse 9. In Psalm 140 verse 3. In verse 14, he quotes from Psalm 10 verse 7. Again, just a string of, of passages of scripture here. So this is what he says. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their throat is an open grave, or their voice is an open grave, he says. Toxic language, one writer says, springs from a, malig a malignant heart. The very voice of our words, the tongues by which we say them, our lips which bring them forth, is deceiving. It's deadly. It's like an open grave waiting to swallow its victims. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. This is a universal indictment. If you just think about, even now, even as you're a believer, Think about some of the things that you say or some of the things that you talk about. Some of the things that you know without question are disapproving of our Lord and offensive to our Lord, offending his holiness. And yet you bear the name Christian. What things have you spoken of? What words have you said to another in order to just cut them down or cut them to the core? And we're all guilty of that. Especially when we get angry, we get angry and we say things that we shouldn't. We say things to people that we love that we don't mean at the time, but at the, in the moment it's just like I need to satisfy this anger that I have because of what you said to me. Or we... we Rob other people of, of any dignity that they may have because we don't like them. Well, that person is this and that person is that. It's like we're back in high school. We don't like people 
And so all we do is flap our jaws, talking all kinds of nonsense about them. And yet the same mouth that brings about these curses is the same mouth by which we bless our Lord. And that's where James comes in and says, this is what you're doing. You're, you're cursing with your mouth and then you're trying to bless the Lord. He says, the poison of asps is under their lips. Charles Hodge writes this, this is the highest expression of malignity. The bite of the adder causes the severest pain as well as produces death. To inflict suffering is a delight to the malignant. malignant. This is a revelation of a nature truly diabolical. And just think of the way that you can hurt people with your words. You can probably hurt people with your words a whole lot worse than you can if you physically hurt them, which he will get to as well. But understanding this, understanding the things that we say and how we hurt the ones that we love because we like to say, well, I can't control what I say or I have a, a temper and I can't control it, that's nonsense. You do it because it brings you pleasure in the moment. That's why you do it. And all of us are guilty of that. And that's how, when Paul is bringing this indictment to both Jews and Gentiles, that's why he's saying, this is something you cannot deny. You are all guilty of this. And this is a demonstration of your depravity. Because our words demonstrate the corruption of our hearts. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, from the mouth, or for, the, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It is an indication of what is inside, the very things that we speak of, the immoralities that we speak of, the anger that we express all comes from the corruption of the heart. So even the Jews will be indicted under this. But then he goes into not only the things that you say, but the things that you do, your depraved actions. And so he says their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Verses 15 to 17, he's quoting Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 8. Verse 18, he's quoting Psalm 36, verse 1. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, this isn't going to be true of all mankind in the sense of every person doing it, but it is true of all groups of mankind. And so that's what he's doing. Remember, he's, he's indicting all mankind universally, generally speaking, all groups. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and this describes mankind's natural tendency to violence or to violent acts. Well, we may not be going around trying to beat up people or physically harm them but it is something that we have to learn not to do because as we are growing up as you have your children what are some of the very things that they do they get mad they start to hit they get mad they start to bite you may have a biter i don't know maybe have a hitter i don't know we had a variety within our family i think but you don't have to teach kids to do that they do it because they get angry, and this is one way that they express it, and it shows the tendency of violence, even among our little ones that we laugh at sometimes and try to bite me. But it is an indication of where the heart is at the moment, the natural tendency of man. 
is to commit violent acts. Children often hit other children at school, perhaps. Somebody took their toy. Somebody took their seat. There's a variety of things that you can look at. But it is a tendency that we must learn not to do. Some people don't learn that. Some people are very swift to commit violent acts, as you see in the world today. You see that in every country. You see it among every people. Well, we, we may not be doing that. We're not swift to commit violent acts. Even though we learn not to do something, we still have the mind that indulges in that very act, even though we're not physically doing it. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he equates uh, anger with murder. And we do this. We may not actually physically harm someone, but when someone angers us or we get irritated or something, we think to ourselves, you better thank God that I am a believer. Thank the Lord that I'm not like I was before or something like that. We may think it over in our minds. Man, if he said that to me again, this is what I would do. I'd walk up, I would do this, blah, 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 and you get pleasure from thinking about how you would harm somebody. You know, that's an indication of the natural tendency of man to commit violent acts. And our anger is a demonstration of that. That's universal to all groups. Not just one, but all. And the reason for that. As, as they are swift to shed blood, he says, destruction and misery are in their paths. This is what their life is about. Peace they don't know because what they know is violence. And he really sums it up, the reasoning, with verse 18, because he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is why all of these things are happening. This is why you talk about things that you shouldn't, or you say things that you shouldn't. Or you get angry in the way that you shouldn't. Or you're swift to commit some type of an act towards another. The reason being is that there is no fear of God. Even for a believer, we excuse ourselves for the moment and we say, Lord, you know I'm angry and I'll commit it now, repent later. Natural man, he does this without even blinking. Because there is no fear of God before his eyes. He doesn't reverence God. He doesn't revere God. He doesn't honor him. Because if he did honor him, then he would seek to do what is right before the Lord. Even though, as we ourselves, we seek to do the same. And we find ourselves uh, often sinning. They have no fear. And if you think about it, there is, you could say that this is, there is no fear of God. There is no reverence before God. Or there is no actual fear of God as far as any punishment that would come thereafter. When you think about doing things that you know that you shouldn't, or you think about wanting to say something or do something out of, out of the impulse of the moment, what is it that keeps you from doing it? I can say for my own self, the thing that keeps me from doing whatever or saying whatever is, oh Lord, please don't let me dishonor you. Please help me not to dishonor you. Because that's what comes to my mind is I don't want 
I don't want God to be displeased. What comes to your mind? It keeps you from doing it. Whatever the restraint is brought about by the Spirit of God within us, the natural man doesn't have that. So there is no fear. No fear of punishment, no reverence for God. And that's why man will always have the path before him that is destruction and misery and no path to peace. You know, mankind tries to come up with a number of different things in order to have this utopia that they so long for. Some, some peaceful society and, and they have a number of ideas by which this can happen and right now America's idea is just let people do whatever they want to and don't say anything. You have other ideas that have been throughout history that caused much bloodshed. But this is this is the truth of the matter, is that there will never be any peaceful society or utopia unless the people first have a fear of God. And when they have a fear and a reverence for God, then they will treat fellow man as we ought to be treating one another. And in order to do that, you have to have all mankind being indicted that they may see their state before a holy God. And that's where he's, he's summing it up here because the section of, of chapter 1, verse 18, all through chapter 3, verse 20 here is all about indicting all mankind so that in verse 21 he will start to give one of the most important paragraphs of all Scripture about the gospel. But here's what he says. Speaking of the condemnation of all men, it's the law of God that does so. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, to be under the law is literally to be in the law, is what the word actually means. It's to, to live in the law so as to dwell in the realm that, God, that God's revelation governs, and that is of all mankind. One writer says, whether one has scripture or the light of nature, everyone knows enough to be accountable. Everyone knows enough to be accountable. Now, here's the problem, though. Yes, we look at Romans chapter 2. We see the light of nature gives this universal understanding of some kind of a morality that even people that have never heard the gospel or had the law have, have governed their societies by. But you have to ask the question, is that good enough then? And the reason being is you have, um, as we talked about Wednesday, you have the belief that, that, like our society specifically, should be governed by the last tablet of the Ten Commandments and natural law. There should not be an instance in which we seek to implement within the society of America the first tablet or even expanding the law of God and applying it to society. What does he say? From, from, or through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How can we expect things to get better or for people to understand their state before God unless we are giving the law? This is what the law of God says. And this is how you are accountable to the law of God. How can we do that if we say, I hope 
through natural revelation that you come to understand that this is actually wrong. Is that what we say? Or in all the things that I'm telling you that you need to be doing is not committing adultery and not lying and not murdering. I hope that you, you see that that's, that's, that's good and right, even though the foundation of doing these things you're ignoring, which is the first tablet. Dear friends, when it comes to the law of God, we understand that there are aspects of the law of God that are not applicable. We understand that the ceremonial law of God has been fulfilled in Christ. We know that. But when you're looking at parts of the civil law, that there are things in the civil law that even our nation is founded upon, which is the expression of the Ten Commandments themselves. It is the application of the Ten Commandments. So when we stand up against things like homosexuality or or rape or other sexual immoralities of incest and what are we quoting what are we saying that this is wrong before god are we saying by the light of nature you ought to know that this is wrong well we have a problem because all the surrounding nations that israel was conquering was doing these things and god brought judgment upon them for those things so are all nations accountable to god and the answer is yes since all nations are accountable to God, do all nations have a responsibility to do the things that are good and right in the sight of God? And the answer is yes. So then when we limit them and we say, well, it's only the second tablet and by the light of nature. I hope you figure this out. We're doing nothing to help or to move this along. That's why, that's why it is necessary, the law of God. And even the civil aspects of the law of God. Paul is going to tell us that the law is good and it's holy and all of that. And then you read in Isaiah 42, beginning of verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And that word law there is Torah. Not just the Ten Commandments, but his Torah. So he's not going to be disheartened until he has done this, is an idea then that there is a process being done here. And he says, in the coastlands are waiting for the Torah. The coastlands are not waiting for the second tablet. In natural revelation, they're waiting for his law. And how does his law come to the nations? It comes through the people of God, standing up and saying, it's not only by the light of nature, which is in agreement with the written law of God, because there's not two different laws here. God is the author of both, and so they both agree. Since this is true, the very things in which you are doing are wrong, and they are sinful, and they are wicked. Because God's word says so. Because God's word says that you should govern righteously and justly because you are called a deacon of God in Romans 13. How can we stand and we, we speak of the evils of our day unless you're using the law of God? The Ten Commandments, there's nothing in there about rape. 
about bestiality, about incest. There's nothing in there about moving boundary markers. There's nothing in there about having your home in such a way in which when people come over that you need to have it in a safe, have a safe environment for them. There's nothing. Where do you get all that? You get it from the civil parts of the law, which is the expression of the law of God. So the law is good and holy. The law silences people. And to silence them means that they put their hand over their mouth. And in order to bring that indictment, it must be that the people of God are bringing forth the law of God to show that all mankind is universally in condemnation. All men's faculties. Look at the words that he uses here. He uses their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths, their feet, their eyes. Universal guilt of all mankind. The reason being is so that he may sum it up by saying, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law is not a means of salvation. The law is a means of condemnation. And that's why when you read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the law gives sin its power. If the law is good and holy, how does that happen? It's because the law is the mirror. And when you understand the law, you understand even more fully how depraved that we really are. And the things that are, that are unacceptable before God. And then the things that are good and just and holy. So all mankind is under condemnation. All groups of people. And there is only one hope. The hope isn't good works. The hope isn't attending church. The hope isn't that your parents or whoever in your family has been Christian. Our only hope then is Christ. The righteousness that people think that they have, they don't. But there is a righteousness that is perfect. There is a righteousness that God honors. And it's the righteousness that is revealed by God himself, which comes through Christ. Dear friends, you can't, you can't expect, you cannot expect to get to heaven by your own good deeds. Because you really have none. Not in and of yourself you don't. You can't expect to get to heaven because you've been taught knowledge about God. You get to heaven because you have placed your faith in the one who had perfect righteousness, which was Christ. That his life, his righteousness is credited to you through faith. Your unrighteousness was credited to him, imputed to him, and he satisfied the justice of his father in your place. You have faith in him, and saving faith is what's in view. Not just having a knowledge, but saving faith, which is you have an understanding of the gospel, you agree that it's true, and then you trust in those facts, in that hope. Nothing to do with how well you're doing. Because your good works are the fruit of, of your justification, not the cause of it. You're going to find that you bear good fruit. There are going to be times in which you don't. That's why you cannot look at yourself. You must look at Christ. That's why Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved. But when I look to Christ, I don't know how I can be lost. Because he is the one and only Savior. He is the one and only hope. And in light of all of the indictments that Paul has given, that's where you focus your hope and your peace and 
and, and your hope to come into the presence of God, it's by works, just not yours. It's by righteousness, but it isn't yours. It's Christ's. So let your assurance, let your hope be in him and not in yourself. And we will stop there and we will pick it back up next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that that it's not anything that we do that can bring us into your favor. But the Lord Jesus accomplished all that was necessary to bring us into your favor. There is nothing for us to do. He lived the perfect life. He died. He died as a substitute in our place. He satisfied your justice. He rose again. That through his work, his finished work, his resurrection, through him, we may have the hope of eternal life. And to have that hope to be assured to us, not for anything else we have to do, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, thank you for your great grace that was bestowed upon us, even though we were so undeserving. We seek to do that which is good, but, Father, we often fail. We want to honor you by our lives, but often we do the things that we don't want to do, and we fail. But thank you. Thank you that the one, the one great hope that we have in Christ, not only to come into your favor and to come into your presence, is that one day we will do this right. We will honor you as you should be honored. We will love you in the way that you deserve to be loved. We will worship you in the way that you deserve to be worshiped at your appointed time when you call us home. Thank you again for this passage. Thank you for our hope in Christ. And I pray for anyone here that does not know you, Father, that by the Spirit of God you would give them a new heart that they may call upon Christ in faith. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen.